Last weekend, we explored together this greatest message ever delivered to human beings, the gospel of Jesus Christ. C.J. Mahaney wrote this, Never be content with your current grasp of the gospel. The gospel is life-permeating, world-altering, universe-changing truth. It has more facets than a diamond, the gospel does, and its depths man will never exhaust. I contended from the scriptures last weekend that the gospel is the main thing in all of life and that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I contend that because in 1 Corinthians 15, God says that the gospel is of first importance. And if our creator, the almighty God of the universe, says that something is of first importance, then it is of first importance. And so the question I've been pondering and I've been challenging you to ponder is this. Is the main thing your main thing? Is the main thing in all of the universe your main thing? Is the thing that is of most importance to God of most importance to you and to me? And we need to consider that. I want to take a couple of moments and review briefly what we learned last weekend from the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians. So if you have a worship folder there, you can pull that study guide out and follow along. Then we're going to observe communion together, and then we'll look at today's passage. Last weekend, we learned that the gospel of Jesus is for both believers and unbelievers. It is the message that when you believe it, gets you into the kingdom of God, and then you do not leave it behind. No, not in God's plan. You continue to embrace and cherish and preach the gospel to yourself every day so that you find yourself living out of the reality of the gospel. And it fuels you. It gives you hope and passion for living the Christian life, Christ in us, as John said, the hope of glory. The gospel is for both believers and unbelievers. Second, the gospel is news, news to be proclaimed and received. As one man said, the gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel really doesn't have much to do with what we do. It has everything to do with what he did, with a work being done, and that is why we can say it is to be proclaimed, it is to be told, it is to be declared, it is news. We also noted that the gospel has power to save people. Save people. To save them from what? To save them from sin and sin's consequences. In fact, it's the only message that can save people. And it only saves those who hold fast to it with persevering faith. Remember that? The gospel is news to be believed. Did you know that you could never amass enough wealth to purchase a spot in heaven? You could never buy your way into the good graces of God. You cannot earn it by your good works, and neither can I. It is a gift to be received through faith. The gospel saves those who believe it, truly believe it and hold fast to it. We noted that the gospel is not man-made. Paul said, I received it. He did not concoct it in his own mind. The apostles did not conjure up this message. He said, I received it from Jesus Christ. Therefore, it cannot be tampered with or altered. It is what it is. We cannot take the hard edge off the gospel. We must receive it as it is from Jesus Christ. And then we learned that the content of the gospel is news about historical events. And there were four of them. Remember, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, 
He rose again and he appeared to many people. That's the content of the gospel. That's the good news. Christ died. The proof is that he was buried. Christ was raised. The proof is that he appeared to many people. And then we saw that the gospel reveals God's grace. Amen? Amen. The grace of God and applies his grace to sinful people. Even God-haters like Paul, Christian killers, God-haters. The gospel of grace can save even those folks. In fact, it can save anybody who will believe it. It can save adulterers, addicts, idolaters. It can even save church people, self-righteous, pharisaical church people. It can save them. It can save prodigals. It can save older brothers. The gospel message can save anyone because it's the gospel of grace, of God's grace. The gospel is the only cure for the universal problem of human sinfulness. I love the gospel poetry penned by a guy named Milton Vincent and contained in this awesome book, which I've recommended to hundreds of people, called A Gospel Primer for Christians. Listen to the way Vincent penned these words. Beholding the heavens, I now understand that God measured them all with the breath of his hand. He fashioned the trillions of stars in the sky, the sun and the moon he established on high, all heaven and earth, which he made in six days, show daily and nightly his merit of praise. So wondrously caring is God every day, creating, sustaining my life every way. Each breath I take in, every beat of my heart, all pleasures well tasted are his to impart. Indeed, for such blessings, he should be adored and honored supremely as eminent Lord. In fact, for this purpose, he brought me to be that I might his glory and kindliness see and cherish him fully all of my days, obeying with pleasure whatever he says, fulfilling the calling he's laid upon me to show forth his glory deliberately. Yet, I could not fail God much worse than I've done, ignoring his glory For my own I have run. I've spurned a life under his wisdom and care, begrudged him the throne, and pretended me there. A prideful and lust-laden path I have trod, transgressing all ten great commandments of God. My foolish rebellion gives God every right to damn me with haste to the miserable plight of terrible judgments in his lake of fire, where wrath is most fierce and will never expire. With wickedest sinners, I truly should know the worst of hell's furies for failing God so. So this is my status, and these are my flaws, apart from Christ Jesus and his saving cause. I carry sin's guilt and am gripped by sin's power, held fast to its various lusts every hour, deserving of flames both within and without and sliding towards hell as I toss all about to reprobate even, to play a small part in clearing my record or changing my heart, to pacify wrath and be worthy of grace, to make myself lovely and win God's embrace, completely condemned by God's law in its whole, I have nothing to offer to ransom my soul. But, wonder of wonders, so great to behold, my God chose to save me with methods so bold What I could not render, God fully has done in doing. He rendered it all through his son. He sent Christ to die on the cross for my sin, to suffer my anguish, my pardon, to win. 
Amazing it is when I stop to regard that God would consent to an anguish so hard, surrendering his son unto mayhem and death, to torturous writhing till his final breath. Why does God forsake me? Alone, Jesus cried, yet God left him hanging until he had died. That Jesus was willing to lay his life down and be scourged and insulted and wear a thorny crown. For one such as I, who had spited God so, amazes and blesses and makes me to know that a greater a lover is no man than he who laid down his life for a sinner like me. We thank God for the death of Jesus Christ and its effect in us. And really, communion, the Lord's table, is a commemoration of that. It's a memorial. It's an honoring of the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf for our sins to make us right with God. The Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. We rejoice and believe in the death of Christ. And we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, don't we? We believe that in this church. But in that church, (laughs) the church in Corinth, that wasn't as widely accepted and held as it is in this church. And so the passage we come to today tackles that very question. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. It reads like this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Are you following this? Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, what is Paul doing here? He is confronting a presupposition that was commonly held, apparently, by people in that church. Do you see the presupposition? Well, first, let's ask, what is a presupposition? You know what that is. That's a belief that someone holds, but they've never really challenged it. They've never really tested that belief. And we all have presuppositions. We got them from our upbringing or our culture conditions us to believe certain things or influential people. But some people in that church held a presupposition that Paul believed needed to be challenged. Do you see what it is? Verse 12. Some of you say, what? There is no resurrection of the dead. Dead people stay dead. Dead people do not rise. Resurrections do not happen. The body stays in the grave. That was the presupposition that Paul wanted to challenge. Now, this is not to say that the people in that church didn't believe in an afterlife. They most certainly believed in an afterlife. They believed in the immortality of the soul. But a resurrection of the body did not fit their paradigm. Because in that Greek culture, Plato and the Epicureans and the Stoics had taught for centuries that while the soul of man is good, the body is what? Evil. Matter was considered to be evil. And so death 
in their view, was a glorious liberation from the evil body. And the body, in their mind, just dust to dust, ashes to ashes, that's where it stayed, no resurrection. To them, immortality lay in getting rid of the body because the body was a prison. But then along comes Paul into that culture, preaching a gospel message that included Jesus' bodily resurrection and the bodily resurrection of his followers someday, the hope of that. And it challenged commonly held beliefs, presuppositions in that culture. He knew that people in that church, even some claiming to be Christians, were struggling with this collision of worldviews. So Paul attempts here to challenge and undermine this presupposition that dead people don't rise. And we need to understand that the way he does that is he basically, for the sake of argument, he concedes the point. And basically says, okay, well, let's just assume that you're right. Let's assume that dead people stay dead, that they don't rise. There is no such thing as a resurrection. And he shows a slippery slope that takes place logically if you accept that first presupposition. Seven disastrous results of denying the resurrection of the body. So here's how Paul's argument goes. If dead people stay dead, if physical resurrection does not and cannot happen... There are certain conclusions. First, Jesus wasn't raised. (laughs) Jesus wasn't raised. Verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Are you sure, Corinthian church, you're ready to accept that? Just realize if you deny the possibility of physical resurrection because the culture you're in thinks it's stupid or absurd, to be consistent, you must therefore deny that Jesus was physically raised from the dead If dead people stay dead, then Jesus is still dead. But doesn't the Christian gospel rest on the historical reality that Jesus rose from the dead? Didn't Paul already state that in verse 3? So accepting this presupposition, he's he's implying, is going to take you places that you may not want to go. Second, if dead people aren't raised, not only was Jesus not raised, but secondly, gospel preaching is Pointless. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. What are we doing? Preaching a gospel that says that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead if dead people stay dead and cannot be raised. When he says our, our preaching is in vain, he's talking about the preaching of the apostles, of James and Peter and John and himself. And what was their primary message? Well, it was that Jesus of Nazareth, came from heaven to earth, lived a perfect life, died on a cross for our sins, and then was raised from the dead. You read the book of Acts. It's all through. That was the apostles' message. But if bodily resurrection doesn't happen, then that didn't happen either. John MacArthur writes this. If Jesus didn't rise, then he's not the Savior. He's not the Son of God. He hasn't purchased our redemption. His sacrifice was not accepted by God. His work was not accomplished. There's no good news to preach, and preaching is pointless. Preaching the gospel is a farce if dead people don't rise. You see, it's a slippery slope once you deny the miraculous and especially the resurrection. Third, if dead people don't rise, if dead people stay dead, Jesus was not raised, Gospel preaching is pointless, and faith, your faith and mine, is useless. 
It's in vain, he writes in verse 14. It's futile in verse 17. That's the next step. If resurrection can't happen, then it didn't happen with Jesus. Gospel preaching is pointless, and those who believe gospel preaching are trusting in something that's not real. It's bogus, and their faith is in vain. Well, sure, that makes sense, because Jesus can't really save anybody because he's still dead. According to that view, his bones are in some ossuary somewhere over in the Middle East, like was claimed a few years ago. He's still dead. He didn't raise himself, and he can't raise anybody else. This is a slippery slope, isn't it? So your trust in a risen Savior is absolutely baseless. Then, if dead people stay dead and don't rise, number four, the apostles who talked about the risen Christ were liars. Verse 15, we, Paul's talking about he and his cohorts, apostles, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now, understand this. If you are a Christian today, you are a Christian because your faith is in Jesus, right? We know that. I don't know if you realize this, though. Your faith in Jesus rests on the testimony of the first century apostles. Did you know that? What those men experienced firsthand, saw firsthand, and wrote down in our Bibles tells us who to put our faith in to be saved. So it's the testimony of those first century apostles that gives us a basis for our faith in Jesus Christ. But if Jesus wasn't raised, then those guys were false witnesses against God, and we've got a huge problem because the people who basically were responsible for giving us the New Testament were liars if dead people don't rise. You see, Christianity crumbles if the apostles were all false witnesses. It really does. It's a slippery slope. The slope gets even more slippery, and the damage gets even more severe for all of humanity, especially for Christians. Number five, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Oh, man. Sin still reigns over people. You're still in your sins if Jesus wasn't raised. Why is that? Aren't there many people even today who would claim to be Christians, claim to be forgiven of sin, but don't believe in a literal resurrection of the dead? There are some people who are like that. And so the question is, is there a link? Is there a logical link between Jesus being raised from the dead and you and I being forgiven of our sins? And the answer is yes. The Bible writers forge a link between those two things. Here's the link. God the Father, literally raising Jesus from the dead, is viewed by the Bible writers as proof that God was satisfied with his payment. Follow that? Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. How do we know if he paid a sufficient price? The way we know, God raised him from the dead. That's what Isaiah 53 says. He shall see the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. You see, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was saying, it's enough. It's sufficient. The price has been paid. The debt has been settled. Sin, human sin is completely paid for. My justice, God said, is satisfied by that. And I'm 
demonstrating my satisfaction by raising my son from the dead. If Jesus was not raised, if Jesus was not raised, then God did not validate his work on the cross. Jesus failed in his attempt to atone for our sins. He cannot save you from your sins. And he's certainly powerless to raise you one day and give you entrance into heaven. If he couldn't raise himself from the dead, he's not going to be able to raise you. But as our gospel pamphlet says that we've given to a lot of people the last few weeks, gospel truth number seven, God raised Jesus from the dead fully satisfied with his sacrifice. You get that? There is a link. You see, if Christ did not rise, then sin won. And death was victorious and the grave held him. And no penalty was paid. No reconciliation was provided. There is no justification. There is no salvation. There is no eternal life. There is no heaven. If Jesus wasn't raised... And you and I will die in our sins despite our faith in Jesus if he wasn't raised. It also means, number six, dead believers are damned. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're in hell if Jesus was not raised from the dead. They were deceived into believing a lie if Jesus didn't really rise. So they're in hell along with Peter and Mary John and James and Paul and Stephen and Philip and all the other first century believers, they're all being tormented in hell along with Abraham and Isaac and David and Daniel and Ruth and Esther and Isaiah because the salvation of Old Testament believers depended upon the same sacrifice. But if if God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, then he must not have been satisfied with that sacrifice. So dead believers are perishing. See, this is a... A slippery slope, and I think Paul's saying, do you really want to go there? Your denial of the miraculous over here takes you here. Are you, is that where you want to go? If Jesus did not rise, then I should not cling to the hope that I'll see my grandparents again on the other side. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then my wife should not cling to the hope that she'll see her father again, who was taken in a freakish accident almost 30 years ago. Because frankly, if Jesus couldn't raise himself from the dead, he can't raise anybody else from the dead if he didn't rise. The great hope we have right here in our church family that there's going to be a grand and glorious reunion one day where we will be reunited with our loved ones, those who are asleep in Christ. It's all a sham if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It's false hope if dead people just stay dead and never, ever rise again. And then at the bottom of the slippery slope is this, number seven. Christians are the world's most pitiful people (laughs) if Jesus didn't rise. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, there's no resurrection, no next life, nothing beyond. It just goes to black, fades to black or something like that. If our hope in Christ is only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're fools. If dead people just stay dead forever, then in Paul's mind, of all the people in the whole world, on the planet, we, Christians, are the most pitiful. Why? Because we have been so foolish as to waste our lives here and now, believing in a dead guy, 
denying ourselves, sacrificing worldly pleasures, all for a lie. Now, there's an assumption here. It's convicting, very convicting assumption. Do you see it? The assumption is that for a true Christian, life here and now is hard. It's difficult. It's a life of self-denial and sacrifice and suffering for Christ. It's the belief that there's a reward in the next life, right? That makes all our current suffering worth it. But if there is no resurrection, if there is no next life, then we should be the most pitied people on the planet. We are fools. We're missing out. If there's no future resurrection for us, then we should party like it's 1999. We should live to just feed our appetites and grab all the fleshly pleasure we can during this life. Holiness wouldn't have any ultimate value because there is no next life if these people were right. Listen, if there's no resurrection, if there's no next life, why in the world would we expend all of these energies that we do trying to make the name of Jesus famous? We ought to be going about just trying to make a name for ourselves if there is no future resurrection. Better to have lived a life of all-out hedonism, unrestrained pleasure-seeking if Jesus did not rise and can't raise anyone else. Paul acknowledges this in a few verses later, verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In truth, what Paul is inferring here is that our lifestyle as Christians should appear stupid to people who don't believe in a resurrection. Why are you living like that? So there it is, laid out for them and for us, the slippery slope. If the presupposition is true, dead people stay dead forever, they don't rise, the body returns to dust, never to breathe the breath of life again, then that means that even Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead which means that gospel preaching is pointless. Those who believe it have been duped. Their faith is empty. It means the apostles were actually false witnesses. The Bible is bogus. Christians are still in their sins. They will die that way. And those believers who already died are perishing in hell. And it means that we who are still alive and trying to live a Christian life of self-denial for Christ are fools. You see, you push that first domino and the rest have to follow. But, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. (laughs) The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits means there's more to come. Christ was the first fruits, the first to be raised, never to die again. Yes, he raised Lazarus, but Lazarus died again. Christ was the first one to be raised who would never die again, and same with those who follow Christ. See, here's where Paul turns the corner. Okay, you guys, you got this presupposition, this belief you have, your culture has pressed it in on you. I'm here to tell you Christ was raised from the dead, and you can't deny it. It was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures Hundreds of people saw the risen Jesus after he was crucified and it transformed the lives of God-haters, deniers, detractors like Paul and Peter and James and others. 
Christ was raised. You can't deny it. So dead men do rise, can rise, and will rise when the giver of life wants them to. The gospel is not pointless. It is true, and gospel preaching matters. Faith in Christ is valid. It's not in vain. The apostles were preachers of the truth, not false witnesses. Believers will not perish, but will be raised to everlasting life. And Christians, far from needing pity, are the people most to be envied in this life because of what we have coming in the next life. So, I will see my grandparents again. I will see grandma and grandpa again. My wife will see her father again in heaven. You see, because Jesus raised himself, he can raise others. We will. This is our great gospel hope, isn't it? We will see Abraham and Isaac and David and Daniel and Ruth and Esther again and Isaiah. And we'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and Peter and Paul and all of those guys, Mary. Because Jesus raised himself from the dead, he can raise others from the dead. We will see Josh Gulvis again, Ralph Brown again, Pat Charlton again, Tina Williamson again, Rick Prescar again, and all the rest of our loved ones who knew Christ, who have passed on, and Gabe and Monica will see little Deacon DeGarmo again. Even as he stood up there yesterday, heaving with sobs and sorrow, this gut-wrenching grief that they've had for a week, trying to process this death, this freakish death of their two-year-old son, and Gabe stands up in front of hundreds of people and says, we're clinging to the hope of the gospel, that we will see our son again, I believe, covered in the atonement at that age. And see him again. This is the hope of the gospel, friends. This is good news. It's good news. Because the gospel is true. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. He said, because I live, you will live also. Amen. Amen. There is a next life. This life here, two years, 50, 60, 70 years, is like about this. And eternity is a, is a line that stretches from here to Los Angeles. There is a next life. It's way more important than this life. Our lifestyle might look foolish to those who don't believe in a resurrection. But someday... When Jesus raises the dead to life eternal, it will become apparent Jesus is the Savior. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord of all of life and all of eternity. And we will enjoy each other and him forever. All because he was raised from the dead. Take that away, Christianity crumbles. Our faith is based on historical reality and fact. Aren't you glad of that? What a blessed hope. What a great promise. I just wanted to ask this as we close. How many of you have loved ones who knew Christ and have passed on, and you're banking on this 
to see them one day again. Would you stand up just all around the room? I don't know, a grandma, grandpa, a mom or dad. Maybe you lost an infant, a miscarriage, a child. Most of us, most of us are banking on the hope of the gospel that Jesus rose again. It's going to be a great reunion one day, isn't it? I want to go up to Ralph Brown and just hug him. Tell him how much I love him, how much we missed him down here. Many of you have loved ones. That's what you want to do as well. Let's all stand for prayer. Lord, thank you for the hope of the gospel that Christ died for our sins, was buried, but that the cords of death could not hold him. (laughs) Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? We rejoice in you, Jesus, that you have the power over sin and death. And because you live, you're going to raise all of your people, your followers, to live again one day. And we're going to see them. And we're going to be reunited in heaven. And we're going to be healthy and holy and pure and not encumbered by the flesh any longer in sin. Man, it's going to be a great day. We want to see Joshua Gulvis again. <laughs> we miss it. Miss Rick Prescar, Dolores McDonald. Many of your people in this room miss. There's a, there's a hole there. But Lord, would you just encourage us today that that reunion day is coming. We bless your holy name. Thank you for gospel hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.